Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Apple for the Teacher podcast. My name is Anna Thomas and thank you so much for joining me today. I currently work in a primary school as well as putting this podcast together. I was hearing more and more news stories about teachers behaving badly and as a teacher myself, I thought there may be enough good stories and content for a podcast and this has proved to be true. I have been thoroughly enjoying researching this podcast and I have found such intriguing stories which I am looking forward to bringing you. What I have found is far beyond what I expected about the school system. Although I could have focused on the stories that I call the bad apples, I thought it would be appropriate to show a balance as not all of us are bad apples. So you will also hear good apple stories which will be positive and uplifting. Every episode will tell a bad apple story and a good apple story. My policy is not to provide the names of people who commit murder or other crimes, but rather to focus on telling the stories of the victims. The names of the so-called bad apples will not be revealed, as I believe they should not be given any more airtime. So let's preview the two stories today. Story one is the bad apple and is called Your Money or Your Life. It was just another normal day at school. Or was it? Story two is the good apple and is called the lawsuit. Lindsay was a student who was not happy with the grade that she got for her project. Why not? I had a number of episodes already planned for the podcast, but then I came across this story and I just had to bring it up the queue. As a little teaser, I'm just going to give you a little clue. Lightning strikes twice. This first story is made up of two parts, so let's get started with part one. The year was 1972 in Australia. There was a small one-teacher school situated in a rural location in a town called Faraday in the state of Victoria. At 3pm, two men entered the school armed with shotguns. They forced the 20-year-old female teacher, Mary Gibbs, and six of her students into a red delivery van. They left a note at the school threatening to kill all of the hostages unless a ransom of $1 million was paid in cash. They drove away with the victims into a remote area in the bush. The ransom note read as follows. Ransom will be $1 million, $500,000 in $20 notes, in three suitcases, $500,000 in $10 notes in six suitcases. All currency must have been in circulation at least 12 months. Pick up details. At 7.25pm, we will contact Lindsay Thompson at Russell Street Police and make arrangements with him. We are not going to waste anyone's time by making idle threats, so we will cut it short by saying that any attempt to trace us and apprehend us 
will result in the annihilation of every hostage. The government agreed to pay the ransom. Lindsay Thompson was the Victorian Education Minister. He was driven to the scene by the Assistant Police Commissioner, who masqueraded as the minister's driver, while armed with a pistol in his trousers. Another policeman hid under a blanket in the rear of the vehicle with a high-powered rifle. Thompson waited to deliver the ransom personally. However, the money was never collected. The next morning, the two abductors told the teacher that they intended to collect the payment. After they left, Mary managed to kick the door panel out with her platform-heeled leather boots, thus giving her and the pupils their chance to escape. Despite their escape taking place in the dark and struggling to find their way around, the freed group managed to find help a few kilometres away. Following an extensive search, the two men were later captured by heavily armed Victoria police officers. One of the men pleaded guilty to seven counts of kidnapping and was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 10 years. Three armed robbery charges against him also got taken into consideration in exchange for evidence against his accomplice. As for the accomplice, he was convicted by a jury and given a sentence of 17 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 12 years. For her bravery, the teacher, Mary Gibbs, was awarded a George Medal on January the 22nd, 1973. The police and media named the kidnapping Australia's Crime of the Century. After the incident, the school was closed down for a short time, but never opened again. It had been built in 1869, so the kidnapping happened a whole century later. And can you believe the school is still standing and has been converted into a house which has had various owners over the years? It is also on the Victorian Heritage Register. And I found out that it was for sale back in 2016 and I would love to be able to live in an old schoolhouse. 30 years after the incident, there was a reunion between Mary, one of her students, and also Lindsay Thompson, who was the education minister who went to hand over the ransom. Isn't that amazing that they were able to get together? The other children declined to reunite, which I can totally understand. They obviously wanted to put the harrowing ordeal behind them. The student who attended said it made her feel like a little girl all over again. And here's another interesting fact. Mary had been wearing her knee-high leather boots, which ended up being crucial in escaping from the van. Wow, I bet she was glad that she had worn them on that particular day. What an amazing story. It just makes me think that this could be me just in my classroom like any other day. Now, that's not the end of the story. As I said at the start, lightning strikes twice. Now, we will go on to part two, which is just so unreal. We are now going to a town called Warine, which is three hours away from where the Faraday kidnapping occurred. The year is 1977, five years after the Faraday kidnapping. Rob Hunter had his first teaching job 
after three years at college in a sole teacher school. He was 20 years of age. He had been welcomed into the township with a local barbecue a few days earlier. He had nine children in his school, six girls and three boys, ranging in age from 7 to 11 years old. Nine days into his job during recess time, some kids ran into the classroom shouting, there's a man outside with a gun. As the school was in a rural location, his initial reaction was that it's just a harmless hunter out shooting rabbits. But then he saw him, a man in the balaclava, pointing the handgun straight at him saying, don't try anything effing smart or I'll shoot you. The man was a jail escapee. The teacher didn't know it at the time, but he was the same man who five years earlier committed exactly the same crime 270 kilometres away, kidnapping Mary Gibbs and her six students at Faraday. He and another inmate had escaped from the Geelong jail. The men tunnelled through two double-skinned brick walls, cut through a padlock to an outside exercise yard, and scaled the external wall and were able to steal a car to make their getaway. The men then parted ways. Rob hoped that it was just a robbery and offered to write a cheque for the man, but the gunman replied, No, mate, that's not the sort of money I want. He chained the children together and bound and gagged Rob before putting them into his stolen vehicle. Before they left, he had written a message on a torn piece of cardboard that read, Have gone on a nature study trip. We'll be back in one hour and commanded the teacher to sign it. He also had a ransom note which stated the following. He demanded the release of 17 of the state's most dangerous criminals, an arsenal of weapons, $7 million in US currency, 100 kilograms of cocaine, 100 kilograms of heroin, and a late model car with a full tank of petrol. The note was addressed to the Deputy Premier of Victoria, Lindsay Thompson. Yes, the same man who was sent the ransom note during the first Faraday kidnapping. What the teacher didn't know was that he had tried the kidnapping at another school earlier that day, before then randomly choosing Rob's class. The ransom note had the name of the original school, called Allenby, which was crossed out and replaced with Wareen. After taking off in the van with the hostages, he stopped at some point to post the ransom letter. During the drive, he yelled at the children, all crammed in the back cabin. You kids keep down. When we're passing any cars, keep your heads right down or bullets will be flying. During the ordeal, one of the girls asked, What's your name? And the gunman eventually responded, Ted failing even to attempt to provide an alias. Another girl asked, Ted, what are you going to do with us? Where are you going to take us? How long are we going to be away for? When will we get back? He answered, you'll only be away until I get what I want. Don't worry, just do what I say and I won't hurt you. But if you do anything silly, I'll shoot the teacher. He drove erratically, hurtling along gravel roads and throwing the chained children around the floor of the truck, leaving them frightened and one bleeding. He yelled, keep your head down or watch out. If I see you waving at anyone, I'll shoot someone. 
Then he ran into another truck, jumped from his vehicle and took the two men in the truck hostage. Don't try anything effing smart or I'll blow your heads off. He now had 12 hostages. Then another truck appeared and he grabbed the two men on board, bringing the number to 14. When a combi van pulled up with two women on board, he added them to the list, now 16 people. He jammed all of these people in the van and drove them to his campsite for the night. He openly bragged about the Faraday kidnapping and declared that this time, if confronted by police, he would shoot it out with them, he wouldn't be going down alone, he would shoot some of them too. The radio was on and the news of the kidnapping broke on the radio, with the gunman showing his delight. During the night, one of the truck drivers managed to remove his chains and crept out of the campsite. He then jogged more than 10 kilometres to a farmhouse to raise the alarm. By early the next morning, the gunman realised one of the prisoners had escaped. He took off with the remaining 15 hostages. The police eventually were on his tail. He shot at the police cars who fired at the tyres. He was shot in the leg and finally arrested. The whole ordeal had lasted 21 hours. The gunman pleaded guilty in the Supreme Court to 16 counts of kidnapping, three of theft of vehicles, three of using a firearm to avoid arrest, one of escape, one of burglary and one of theft. He was sentenced to 21 years with a minimum of 18. However, it would still not be the last that people would hear from him. In 1981, he strangled and killed another prisoner in Pentridge Prison. In 1993, he was released. It has been reported that he now works as a truck driver and has not been in any legal trouble since. After the ordeal, four of the students did not return to the school, leaving Rob with just five students for the rest of the year. The teacher went on to write a book about the ordeal some 40 years after the event, called Day Nine at Warreen. And at the book launch last year, in 2018, six out of the nine students attended. You can find a photo on the Facebook page. He refused to be defined by the kidnapping and continued to teach around Victoria. He said that he had let go of his anger and did not seek revenge. He now gives school lectures on the lessons he has learnt and teaches kids about mental resilience. His seminar is called Health After Hurt and gives a first-hand insight into the trauma experienced by the victims of heroism and bravery along with the health and healing that is possible from such pain and torment. Students are given practical tools to cope with their hurts and traumas. And here's a remarkable fact about the story. One of the students, who was nine years old at the time, went on to become mayor of the local government where the kidnapping took place. He says the ordeal has shaped the person he has become later on in life, in a good sense, of course. So what did you think about that? An absolutely crazy story. It was probably a good thing that he was such a stupid criminal, otherwise it may have been a totally different and tragic outcome.
What struck me about this story is just how small that these classes were. I would love to have a class of less than 10 students. Can you imagine the learning that could go on rather than what we have today of 25 up to 30 students? Students would be able to get much more of a quality education. Now, what you're going to hear next is a part of a video that Rob made when he did a lecture, which only actually happened a few months ago. So during this lecture, he was recalling what happened all those years ago. And here is some of what he had to say. How do you get over trauma like that? Because if you don't get, don't get over it, um, I mean, I had some of this. I didn't have it too bad, but I was a young, naive 20-year-old that got back on the horse pretty quick, so to speak. But I did have a bit of post-traumatic stress. A um, lot of palpitations, a lot of episodes where I'd relive it in sort of hot sweats and sleepless nights and things like that. And the children, I think, possibly had it worse than me and the parents then even worse again. Because um, if you don't get over that trauma, what's the problem? You have mental health problems, you have depression, you have anxiety attacks, fear can take hold, um, all, sorts of, all sorts of issues. So, and the anger, if you, if you don't get over it, your anger builds up and you end up being like this book written by Sandy Wilson that's called Hurt People, Hurt People. And so I say to the kids, because I'm running these seminars in secondary schools now, you see. So I said, look, if I didn't get over this, I could have become a hurt person that hurts people. I could have become an abusive husband or an abusive father or a bullyish teacher or a not a very nice friend. And they understand that. Um, and I said, that's what a bully is. A bully is somebody who's been hurt who is now taking it out on someone else taking it out on, on other kids or, or, or what have you. And certainly kids at school understand that concept. I love that saying, hurt people, hurt people. I'm going to use that with my kids. It's just so true and it sums it up in just a perfect way. What he said is so true. You need to forgive in order to move on. But I can imagine that it's just not so easy to do, especially if you've had a loved one murdered. How do you forgive the person who murdered them? Well, I hope that I am never placed in that situation. As always, I have not named the gunman and will continue to not name the bad apples in future episodes as I don't believe that these people deserve any recognition. Before I finish this story, I came across another interesting piece of information about the gunman. He wrote a book about the incident. Can you believe it? I really think that sh there should be a law about criminals profiting from their crimes. Personally, I have no interest in reading any criminal's memoir, but gladly would read a victim's account. There are some great black and white photos of the teachers and the students in this story, which you can find on Facebook and Instagram. Let's now have a break before story two. Now on to story two, which is the good apple story. In 2007, 
a student named Lindsay Hay attended a high school in the US. She received a bad grade in biology and decided to sue her teacher and the Board of Education demanding that the grade be changed. She was given an F on a leaf project because it was turned in late. She explained that she had gone on a student council trip which caused her to turn the project in late. She claimed to be shocked and embarrassed at the grade and that it could be a potential life ruiner. The student claimed the grade would prevent her from becoming the school valedictorian or at least that the incident had destroyed her goal of graduating with the highest honours. She was previously sporting a 4.5 GPA and claimed that it would drop to 4.45. She was offered half credit after her parents and the principal intervened, but this was not sufficient. The student felt the teacher's action was intended to punish and ruin her GPA. She demanded compensation for emotional distress, loss of enjoyment of life and of school, and of scholarship potential. During the court proceedings, she argued, quote, I was on a approved field trip that day and not even in the stupid school to turn in the stupid leaf project, which was stupid anyway. The judge remarked that she had other options, namely to turn in the project a day early or she could have called her mother to turn in the project for her. The judge also wrote that she was not punished for her absence. Instead, she did not receive full credit because she did not turn the project in on time. The case was dismissed with the judge stating, quote, The lawsuit appears to invite the courts to second-guess grading decisions of professional educators who are traditionally vested with great discretion in that area. It is not a proper role for a court to assess whether a particular penalty imposed for turning in schoolwork late is too harsh. He continued saying, A grade cannot be altered once given unless it can be shown that a teacher made a mathematical error in calculating it. The teacher involved in the incident said, quote, I am thankful for the judge's decision to dismiss this case, not just on my behalf, but on the behalf of all teachers. Every teacher I know tries to ensure success for each student as much as possible. We cannot be effective in the classroom while harboring paranoia about parents, second-guessing grades, or every mark that we make on a paper. Hear, hear, I second that. What an interesting story. My thoughts on this are, if she was someone who had a 4.5 GPA and scholarship potential, then she should have been smart enough to turn in her LEAF project on time. I think she needs to learn a bit of self-respect. And self-respect comes from saying, you know what, this may not be fair, but I have to accept the consequence. Part of going to school is learning there are rules, learning there are deadlines. She needed to learn from her mistake and just suck it up. As for her parents, well, if this happened to me, my parents would have said, tough, it was your own fault. They wouldn't have encouraged me to sue the teacher. I am so pleased about the outcome of this case and thankfully common sense prevailed. Otherwise, the floodgates would have been opened. It was such a waste of precious court time on something so frivolous. 
The courts are there to deal with serious crimes, not such pettiness. So that's the end of that story. Now, just before we finish, I would like to give you a preview of episode five. It's called Gay Bunny and the T-Shirt. Here's a summary. A teacher read a storybook about a bunny. There's no harm in that, right? Taylor wore a T-shirt to school that caused a stir. So what was all the fuss about? Thank you so much for staying with me until the end. I am loving researching and putting this podcast together. I've been a podcast listener for a while and I thought that I would give it a go. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to get in touch with me, my email is appleforthetearcherpodcast at gmail.com. As well as the Facebook page, you can also join the private Facebook group, which is invitation only, and therefore a safe place for us to interact. I'm always on the lookout for good stories, so if you know any, don't hesitate to let me know. I would love to include your stories in the podcast. So to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.